First Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. When you are in the middle of difficulty, it is often hard to see your way past your experiences and to see how that difficulty or suffering fits into the bigger picture of your life. We know that to be true. You've heard the expression that sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees. That is to say that when you're in difficulty, it is difficult to look past the pain of every one of those trees in front of you to take a step back and to see how and where you are in the midst of this massive forest of life and what lies ahead. And that is why hope is so important. Peter's writing this letter of 1 Peter to exiles, exiles who are scattered throughout Europe because of their faith in Jesus, exiles who are longing for a home, men and women and boys and girls that are having a hard time seeing the forest for the trees. And he's encouraging them to stand fast in the midst of these very difficult times. Last week, we began to explore together what that looks like for them and for us to live with a living hope that Peter calls us to live with, and we see that he continues that theme right at the beginning of this next section. The part of seeing the forest for the trees is fighting for hope, and hope is a unique thing, isn't it? It's a unique thing because it includes a level of uh, mental recognition, it has a level of optimism, it has a level of confidence. And hope is something that has to do with your perspective on what is and what is to come. Peter commands that they fight for hope. He's, we see this right away in verse 13. Look at it with me. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
When you are in exile, when you feel distant, when you are persecuted, when you feel alone, when you're going through difficulties in life, set your hope on the grace that God is going to show to you when Jesus comes back. You know, God's grace in your life will become its most clear (laughs) and its most magnificent upon the return of his son, Jesus. Grace is the favor that God gives to a person regardless of whether or not they've earned it. He gives them a standing, a favor. He extends his love to them even though we might not deserve it. And Peter reminds us that upon the coming of Jesus, we're going to experience this grace profoundly in ways that we have not experienced before. You're going to experience God's grace profoundly when your physical bodies are made perfect forever. You're going to experience God's grace profoundly when you are vindicated for all of the ridicule and scorn and shame that you've experienced in this life because of following Jesus. Grace will be experienced profoundly when our pardon for sins is declared at the final judgment. Grace will be profound to you when God pours wrath out on Satan and his demons who tried to lead you astray during this life. And grace will be profoundly experienced by all of us when we take hold of the eternal inheritance that God has been waiting to give us until that final day. That inheritance that he is keeping in heaven for us right now that you will enjoy forever. God's favor will never be more profoundly experienced by you unless it comes on that day. And so Peter says, set your hope on that grace. Grace so glorious for every person who believes in Jesus, set your hope on that grace. Now the idea of Putting your hope in God's grace and having that related to the second coming of Christ is a common theme throughout the Bible. We could list many verses, but here's just a couple to give you a flavor for it. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul writes, tells us to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Or the same book, 1 Thessalonians 3.18, tells us to encourage one another with these words which point to Jesus' return in the clouds and the raising up from all of those who are his to meet him in the air. Or Colossians chapter 3, in which we're told to set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Because when Christ appears, then you also will appear. In glory. And so, hope, he says. Hope. Set, it, set this hope on the grace that will come at Jesus' return. And hope, in the biblical sense, then, is this combination of anticipation. It's confidence. And it changes your perspective on what is 
and what is to come. And when you are living in difficult times, that's really good news. But there's an obvious difficulty when it comes to hope, isn't there? Hope is something that is both cognitive in its nature, but it's also emotional. Hope is something that we think and believe, but hope is something that we also feel. And the struggle comes when we know that we should hope, we want to hope, the things that we believe in should cause us to hope, but we just don't feel hopeful. Let's take another emotion and compare it to this idea. Another emotion that's both cognitive and emotional in its nature. How about the uh, emotion of excitement? I know that in a few short months that it's going to snow. That makes me happy because I know that when it snows, eventually, whether it's in January or February, March, that I will probably get to go skiing, which is one of my favorite things to do. I know that right now, even though it's only September. But I don't feel excited just yet. I know in my mind that it's coming, and therefore those thoughts create some kind of excitement, but the emotion, the feeling of excitement is something that's trailing behind. It's something that will catch up eventually as the time gets closer. Now, there are probably some things that I could do between then and now that would help evoke that feeling all the more. But eventually, those thoughts and those feelings will come together in excitement. Some of us might be in a difficult situation in life right now, and you might feel like an exile, and you might say, well, Peter, it's all well and good for you to tell us to have a living hope in this life that's pointed to the grace of God that's going to be bestowed to us upon the resurrection of Jesus, but I just don't feel it. I just don't feel hopeful, and therefore I don't know how helpful this is for me right now in the midst of my difficulty. Is hope really just an intellectual endeavor or is there something more? And here is where Peter gives a few more commands in this passage that helps us understand how you grow in hope. Did you know that hope is something that you can grow in? Hope is something that you can develop. And Peter tells us how to develop it in this chapter. And he says that there's two things that you can do, Christian, that will help you develop in hope. We could summarize it this way. Grow in a healthy mind and in a holy life. A healthy mind and a holy life embolden your hope in Christ's return. Let's look at the mind that leads to hope. It says in verse 13, look at it with me. It says, it gives us two ways in which we can set our hope. He says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. 
Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. These are the two ways that your mind can grow in hope. So what does it mean to prepare your mind for action and how do you do it? I mean, the phrase, preparing your mind for action, literally reads, in the, in the original language, gird up the loins of your mind. That's a vivid picture that for some of us might not be all that helpful because we don't really talk about girding your loins anymore. But the idea of girding your loins in the ancient world was you would take the robe that you were wearing and you would tuck it up underneath and you would pull it through and wrap it around your waist. Soldiers were, to were told to gird their loins to be ready for battle so that the robe wouldn't get caught up if they were going to go for a run from one place to another, they would gird their loins so their robe wouldn't be trampling through the dirt. If any sort of physical activity was required, it made sense to gird your loins. It's with that same level of intentionality that Peter says to prepare your mind. Preparing your mind in this life is like girding your loins. It's getting ready to do something active. It's getting ready to do something that might even be a battle. And so how does that happen? I wonder how you prepare your mind. Or if you do at all. The discipline of the mind is an interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, we know that there are many common obstacles to disciplining our mind. Most of us probably underestimate the significance of those obstacles or what they're doing to us or for us. For example, we know that when we get home and we just flip on the TV, that is a relaxing time to shut off your mind. <laughs> and there's been study after study after study about the effects of TV on our brains and what that does to us. And probably one of the more famous ones happened from a group of researchers in 2013 in Japan in which they studied children and the effects of television on children and on adults and they concluded that significant amounts of watching television uh, develops parts of the brain adversely and leaves under parts of other parts of the brain undeveloped. And so the old saying that your mom used to say to you uh, back in the mid 80s is probably pretty true. Turn off the TV, it's going to rot your brain. Well, maybe not completely true, but it is hard to prepare your mind if you spend a significant amount of your free time watching television. Likewise, we know that um, smartphones have created a whole new obstacle to mental discipline, don't we? Um, how many people have a smartphone here in the room today? Most of us. In 2018, the average American looked at their smartphone 52 times a day. 52 times a day. Just in the last two years, that average has come up to 96 times a day. The average person that has a smartphone looks at that phone 96 times a day. 
Some of those glances are quick, others of them are longer engagements. This has become so much a problem that Apple actually puts that little counter in there to let you know how much screen time you have every day, and that's just on that screen. But when we look at those screens, we know that there is a rewiring of our mind that's happening, that there's a change in the chemistry in our brain, that there's a dopamine dump that happens uh, for a very short period of time and that is pleasurable to us until it goes away. And this is an obstacle in some ways to preparing our minds. You know, another obstacle is just simply the pace of life that many of us lead. When was the last time that you just sat somewhere to think? that you sat on the back porch with no music on, no device in hand, and you just thought about things. When is the last time you sought out another person for a stimulating conversation? No other agenda. If we are too busy doing things, that becomes an obstacle to preparing our mind. Now, these things are obvious in their nature. There's many more that we could list. And we certainly do not want to be the type of people that are are incapable of functioning with the technology that we have around us or in the environment that we live. God has placed you in this time, in this season of life, in this place for a purpose. But here's the question. What are you doing to prepare your mind? Sometimes I hear the critique of our church that we are too heady or that that's the church that you go to if you want to study the Bible with a little bit more academic nature to it. And um, that's usually not talked about in, in a favorable light, but I don't mind it so much because here's the thing. If God is going to have your heart, he will first capture your mind. If God is going to have your heart, and that leads to a life that is engaged in following him, he will first capture your mind. And so here's the challenge for you today. Make a commitment to grow in this type of preparation of your mind. And I don't know what it is for you, but there's a lot of options out there. Maybe it is as simple as I'm going to watch less TV (laughs) and I'm going to read more books. I'm a big believer in good, stimulating, healthy Christian books to help prepare our mind. Or maybe it's taking time to sit in front of your fireplace and just think, to think about your children to think about your marriage, to think about the patterns and habits of your life, to think about the things of God. Or maybe it's over the next couple weeks you're going to start setting appointments with people just for the sake of having stimulating conversation about things of the Lord, what you're struggling with, what you're hopeful for, what you're confused by, what you want to learn more of. I'm sure that This preparation of the mind will always include some level of reading the scriptures. God speaks to us in that way. But this week is the time that you have an opportunity to start a new pattern for the next season of your life, a pattern in which you prepare your mind for action. And as you do that, 
You will grow in hope, Peter says. If you don't feel hopeful, if the resurrection of Jesus or the second coming of Jesus doesn't enrapture you, prepare your mind and you will grow toward that direction. A healthy mind and a holy life embolden your hope in Christ's return. Now, the mind is one of the things that prepares us for action, but for Peter, there's another thing. He tells us that a life of hope is a holy life. Look with me at verses 14 and on to 16. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So the command in the middle of that little section there is to do not be conformed to the former passions of your ignorance, but be holy. That's the command. And in our time, the idea of holiness or being holy has a certain tone to it. Uh, that may not always have the most positive connotation for you. When you hear the word holy, other than God, what do you think of? Our culture puts forward a number of images of what it means to be holy. Our culture would say, well, the holy man on the mountain is one who is separated from the world and wears the beat-down robes or Or maybe it has religious vestments and big crosses of jewelry upon him. Or maybe the idea of being holy that comes into your mind is that old saying, you just think you're holier than thou, don't you? Translation, if you pursue holiness, it puts you in the position of thinking you're better than somebody else, which is really common in our culture today. And some people hear the word holy, and their first response is, that's boring. That holiness equals boring. I wonder what it is for you. Here we see that you will never grow in getting through the difficult times as an exile. You'll never grow in your hope unless you pursue a life that rejects the sinful activities and patterns of the world, your former passions, and pursues acting in the character of God, which is holiness. And that all of the critiques of being holy or pursuing holy or the misconceptions about being holy, all of them melt away in the middle of the most difficult times because when times are really hard, it's the people who have a holy life that actually have Hope, while the others are wilting. And there's a really interesting marker point in this growth in holiness that Peter indicates right here. He implies that holiness is an indicator for people who are in the family of God. Look at verse 14. He refers to us as obedient children. Verse 17, those who call upon the Father. Obedient children and Father. It's family language, isn't it? Your children, fathers, 
call upon you differently than they're going to call upon the man who's down the pew from you. Fathers and mothers, you look at your children differently than you look at the neighbor kids across the street. There is a unique and profound love and family trait that is embedded in there. Here's the point. If God is your father, then you will be empowered and desirous to pursue a holy life. You will want to be like your father. But if God is not your father, then it will be impossible for you to pursue a holy life. And you probably don't even think about or care if you have a holy life. And there's so many different implications of this. We see that we've been changed from passions of our former ignorance, verse 14, and ransomed from our futile ways, verse 18. God has fathered us into that as we were born again into his family. And the practical implications are many as well, but here's just one that we cannot escape in this time. If you think that the world around you can cast a vision for your life that has the most happiness or the most joy or the greatest amount of fulfillment or that will give you hope, you're sorely mistaken. It's impossible for them to do it because they don't have the same father you have. It's your father who empowers you into these things. It's your father who gives you perspective and confidence and direction for your life. And if your life is regularly viewed through the lens of your favorite TV show or through the thousands of advertisements that you see every single week that are trying to convince you that you are not satisfied and need to buy more things, or even through the relationships that you have with people who don't know the Lord or through the politicians that are placed to lead us, they will not be able to lead you into that hope. Only your father can. J.I. Packer says it this way, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that is distinctively Christian, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. And so we want to be like our Father and live in holiness because we are part of his family. Friends, a healthy mind and a holy life embolden your hope in Christ's return. And Peter concludes this section 
with giving us some more motivation to these two ideals. Some motivations to pursue a healthy mind and a holy life. As if the growth in hope wasn't enough, right? But motivation number one you see in verse 16, that's God's character. Be holy, for I am holy. God's people strive to be like their father. Motivation number two is seen in verse 17, and that is God's impartial judgment. Verse 17 says that if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. God dispassionately evaluates all of our deeds. He is impartial. Yes, he is our father. Yes, Jesus pays the penalty for our sin and that pardon is extended to you if you put your faith in him. And yes, that relationship with Jesus gives us entry into the family of God. But there is nothing in this life that you can hide from God. If you are tempted to think to yourself, well, I am just going to go ahead and engage in this sin because God probably doesn't see it. Or it's really not that big of a deal because God doesn't care. Or it's all covered under the grace of the cross anyway then you know that there is nothing left unnoticed or unaccounted for by God. There is no sin in this life that will not be reckoned with either on the cross of Christ or in hell. And so take your sin seriously, Peter says. Don't let your difficulty be the excuse for you to ignore the significance of it. Live with holy reverence to your Father. Do you have sin in your life today that's just eating away at you? That you can't seem to shed? Today is an opportunity to elevate the importance of it and kill it. That's what a pursuit of holiness does. Motivation number three for a healthy mind and a holy life is seen in verses 18 and 19, which is Christ's precious ransom. This is what it says. It says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now we might think that silver and gold are the precious things and they will never be destroyed. But Peter actually calls silver and gold the perishable things and says there's something infinitely more precious. The precious thing is the blood of our Savior which bought us. And that we experience the benefit from forever. So if God's holy character doesn't inspire you, and if God's impartial judgment doesn't give you fear, 
then let the fact that you were ransomed from the enemy and bought with the most precious thing in eternity, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, compel you. A healthy mind and a holy life emboldens your hope in his return. Do you want to grow in setting your hope on that grace of God? Then develop a healthy mind and a holy life. They will fuel you in this growth. You will move from the person, not in one day, not in two days, not right away, but over the course of weeks and months and years, if you develop a healthy mind and a holy life, you will move from the person that knows that they should be hoping but doesn't feel it to the person who recognizes the hope that we have in their mind and who feels it deeply in your life. And it's so important to have hope as an exile. It's so important to have hope as one going through difficult times. Hope is what helps you see the forest from the trees. Hope is the perspective that helps you evaluate what is and what is to come. It will not allow you to be entrapped by your circumstances. This type of hope gives you lasting confidence, anticipation, and even longing for that thing that you know you should have anticipation and longing for, but maybe you just don't feel it. Maybe there are some of us here today who feel like you are in exile or like the difficulty of your circumstances are overwhelming upon you right now. I love the short story told by James DeLoach about this dynamic. This is what he said. He said, I'm not a connoisseur of great art, but from time to time a painting or a picture will really speak a clear, strong message to me. Some time ago I saw a picture of an old burned out mountain shack. All that remained was the chimney and charred debris of what had been the family's sole possession. In front of this destroyed home was a grandfatherly-looking man standing there in his underwear and a small boy clutching a pair of patched overalls. And it was evident the child had been crying. Beneath the picture were the words that the artist felt the old man was speaking to the boy. They were simple, yet they presented a profound theology and philosophy for life. Those words were, hush, child, God ain't dead. The vivid picture of that burned out mountain shack, the old man, the weeping child, and those words, God ain't dead, kept returning to my mind, he says. And instead of being a reminder of the despair of life, it has come to be a reminder of hope. I need reminders that There is hope in this world. In the midst of all of life's troubles and failures, I need mental pictures to remind me that all is not lost. As long as God is alive and is in control of his world. And that is why Peter finishes this section that your faith and your hope are in God. If you're here today and you feel hopeless, 
You've been wandering about. You can't seem to see the forest from the trees. The difficulty of your circumstances is overwhelming for you. Then I invite you to put your hope in God. For some of you, it might be putting your faith in the Lord Jesus for the very first time. To becoming a child of God by asking for forgiveness of your sins. And trusting a Savior to forgive you. And experiencing the wonderful entrance into God's family of being born as his child and experiencing hope for the very first time. And if that is you today, I extend the invitation and the offer. Put your faith in Christ today. For some of you, it might be a renewal of hope that was once there but has faded. Maybe you have had your hope in God, but the difficulty of your circumstances has continued to erode that hope. And for you, The call is to develop a healthy mind and a holy life and jumpstart hope again. And today is the opportunity to begin that journey. Hope is anticipation. Hope is confidence. Hope in the coming of the Lord is grace bestowed to you and hope helps you see what really is and what is to come. Let's pray together. Father, grow our hope, we pray. For those who feel hopeless, Minister to them by the power of your Spirit even now. For those who need further preparation, help us this week to make at least one change to prepare our minds. For those of us struggling with repeated sins, help us to pursue holiness in the ways we have not done so before. And grow our hope, we pray. Amen.